Hello fellow adventurers and welcome back to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I am an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. In today's episode of the Nerd Lab, I have a guest to whom I really look up to. His work was, and still is, a great inspiration for my own journey, um, especially um, as a content producer. He, is probably, he has probably interviewed every successful game designer on this planet, but he's not only the host of one of the most successful podcasts of the industry, he is also a quite successful game designer who especially loves dexterity games and solo games. Please welcome with me to the show Gabe Barrett of the game, uh, Bot Game Design Lab. Welcome to the show, Gabe. Marvin, really appreciate you having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. Today we want to um, talk a little bit about solo games um, and your current game, Hunted. And I'm very happy to have you um, on board for that episode because I'm not super familiar with that genre and I will probably ask a lot of stupid questions. <laughs> So, but before we start, um, can you please introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about your personal journey with your podcast and your game designs and how you ended up in the industry at all? Yeah, definitely. So, like I said, my name is Gabe. I run the Board Game Design Lab podcast, and that came out of... So, I live in Honduras. I've been here six years, and I wanted to get more involved in the industry. I love games. I love playing games. I got started into you know designing games just as a hobby, just you know something on the side to do for fun. But I wanted to contribute more to the industry, and living in Honduras makes that a little bit difficult. I can't really go to conventions very easily. Uh, I couldn't really review board games. There aren't really any uh, local game stores here I could buy games and then review them on YouTube or anything like that. And so I started thinking, okay, what what could I do? And I had the idea, like, what if I started a podcast? And you know, I was just a fledgling game designer at that point. I thought, well, what if I started interviewing game designers and just kind of picking their brains? Uh, about game design and, and their different projects that they were working on. And that's just kind of how it all started. I started reaching out to different designers in the industry. And crazy enough, they said yes, they would come on my show uh, back, you know, even when it was just getting started. And uh, it's just been a wild ride ever since. I think I'm up to like 154 episodes at this point, which is that's crazy. Amazing. I never thought, yeah, I never thought it would, would turn into this. I never thought it would, you know, turn into kind of a, a stream of revenue as, as, you know, almost being able to become a full time job. It's, I'm kind of semi pro in the industry right now, being able to kind of have a, a part time job with with board games and, and design and the podcast and stuff. And then uh, as just as I've grown in the podcast, I've also grown as a game designer. And, you know, getting some games picked up by publishers and put a few games on Kickstarter. And uh, one of them's on there right now. I'm looking forward to talking to you about that one, that solo game. It's been a lot of fun just to learn how to design these things and learn how to turn them into products and put them in the marketplace and, and you know, have a few people buy them. And so it, it's been a, a journey, like you said, but it's been a lot of fun. When did you start with your podcast? Uh, about three years. Three years so, now. Yeah. Because, you know, you get roughly basically 52 episodes a year. And so I do one every week. And so up to 154. So that's, uh, you know, around three years at this point. Yeah, that's great. And you're very consistent with your shows. Every yeah. Wednesday, man. That's one yeah, thing. I, when I started out, and that's something that I've just encouraged a lot of other people that want to get into content creation. Consistency. Be consistent. You know, people need to be able to trust you. They need to be able to trust that they, you know, you're going to have a show on time. It's going to come out every week or every two weeks, wherever you, whatever you decide your schedule is. Just stick to it and turn it into a job, even before you're making any money. Uh, make sure you're taking that professional approach to it, just like you would, you know, your day job. And so that's been kind of uh, my mindset, or, you know, since the beginning. 
Yeah, that's very good advice. Yeah. And I try to do so myself. I struggle here and there, but um, I'm on a good way, I would say. So I get a, yeah, I will get probably about, let's say, 40, 45 episodes for this year, for the for my first year on the podcast. Um, and next year I'm going to to hit the 52, I'm pretty sure. That's awesome, man. It's just habit. You know, anything, like anything else, you got to turn the, the methodology into a habitual thing that you do every week, and, and then it gets a lot easier as you go. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And you said that you are currently maybe half-time in the industry and um, have another job. So what are your plans on um, on going full-time? I, I guess this is um, this is the long-term goal, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So this year is, is kind of the, the idea. Um, the big part of that is putting out more games. You know, if you're a game designer, you have to uh, get published a certain number of games every year if you're going to make any revenue off of it, just because you don't make a ton of money off each individual game usually. Now, if you have some kind of mega hit, uh, then you might be a little... A little easier to do that, but typically you're going to uh, publish several several games. And so my plan this year is to put several uh, games on Kickstarter, and and you know hopefully they'll do pretty well. And then the podcast uh, is doing fairly well as well. With uh, and then the book sales. That's another thing. I, I've I've written a book. I've got another book coming out uh, early next year. That'll be another Kickstarter project. And so just kind of finding a di diverse uh, streams of revenue to, to kind of piece together a full time living is has been my plan. So we'll see what see what happens. Yeah, that sounds great. And I also backed one one of your books this year. So I will probably back the other one as well when it comes out. So I, I, I add a little, my little part to your revenue stream at least. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, but for, for me, since I'm in a pretty similar situation, I would say, I'm interested in how do you really find the right balance between creating the content and designing games? I mean, um, especially from a time and effort perspective, You, I mean, you have a family as well. You have another job as well, and yeah, it's clear that both areas, the content creation and the games, that they create some kind of of a revenue for you, and they benefit from each other. I'm sure, but with the limited time we all have, um, I'm interested in how you find the, the right balance between those areas, and um, where do you think which which of these areas is maybe the more profitable one for your future. Yeah, for sure. So schedule is the number one thing it is scheduling out a week, scheduling out my days, my times, you know, and, and saying, okay, this day, these times are, are going to be for the podcast. And this is when I edit. This is when I record. This is when I do all the different things that go for that. Or for game design. Okay, there's, here's the days that I'm going to do my best to get some playtest done, to get some prototyping in, to work on development, whatever. This, these days, these times. And just scheduling it out, just like you do your normal day job, right? You know, you have to be there at nine. You can't leave till five. If you do, you know, if you if you just leave whenever you want to, it doesn't go well with your boss, right? Because you have a schedule. You have certain things you have to get done during that day. And so I try to take that same approach to game design and then content creation and then just stick with it. And then the people around me, they know that like every Tuesday afternoon, that's when I edit the podcast. It's going to go up on Wednesday. And so I've had friends that would, you know, knock on my door. I live in a really cool community here in Honduras uh, with a lot of other teachers and Americans and Canadians and people. And, you know, we, we play basketball. We do different things together. And, and they know that if they knock on my door on Tuesday afternoon, I'm not doing anything. Like, just don't just walk on by. It's not going to happen. And so it's to the point where I would get text messages and I say, hey, man, do you want to? And then, like, can I show the like, next message? Like, never mind. It's Tuesday afternoon. I know I know you're working on the podcast stuff. <laughs> so that's another thing, just kind of doing things consistently so that people around you know this is your schedule. Just like they wouldn't show up to your job and be like, hey, you want to go, you know, <laughs> just leave and do whatever. Like, no, I'm, I'm at work right now. And so taking that approach and then also having just an incredible wife, just an amazing spouse that is an awesome teammate to help kind of fill in the gaps. That way, when I am putting a lot of time into game design or the podcast or whatever, she's filling the gaps with, you know, taking care of the kids, uh, cooking dinner, going out and doing 
you know, grocery shopping, those kinds of things. She fills those gaps so that I'm able to do these other things and able to fill other gaps. And so it's, it's a team game for sure. So I'd say, I'd say those are the two main things is scheduling your time and being very, very strict about the, the schedule and sticking to it, dying on that hill, so to speak, and then having teammates around you that can kind of help you make sure you're, you're getting things done. Yeah, that sounds a lot like a, like a good working co-op game. It's more <laughs> yeah, or less the opposite of what we are talking uh, about today yeah. because we want to focus a little bit more on um, on solo games today. But yeah. before we get to that, um, just one follow-up question maybe. What do you think the split will be when when we when it comes to revenue not not maybe the num the, the real figures and numbers but maybe just a percentage what do, what would you say you can make in the future maybe or what are your plans to 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 make off from the podcast and from your games maybe. Yeah, for sure. So I think the podcast is really uh, becoming mainly a, a marketing tool. Mm -hmm. It's a way to build community, build a crowd, uh, build up a group of people, people that, that kind of know who I am, that know the projects I'm working on, things like that. And then developing things for that market uh, is, is it's kind of a, a two edged sword because I have the, the podcast stuff. And those people that listen, they're mainly in it for game design stuff. You know, they're not necessarily listening to my, my content because they want to buy one of my games. They're listening because they want to hear interviews from, you know, some of the best designers in the world. And so really being smart about the products that I design and develop, knowing that that is my audience. And so, for instance, the books that I'm working on are strictly for that audience, right? It's, it's not just random things. Hey, I wrote a novel. Check it out. No, it's like this is specifically for game design. This is specific, specifically for somebody that, that's listening to my show, that target demographic. And so, you know, hopefully the, those products will do pretty well because I'm targeting that market. Uh, same thing. I'm working on like a, a game design a course kind of thing, a, a game design academy. And, you know, just trying to put together an online course to help people who are just starting out in game design, who are finding my podcast and, and thinking, okay, I've just started. I have no idea what to do. What's step one, step two, step three, and then providing something for them. So there's that side of things. And then offering the games, the games that I'm working on, publishing and kickstarting, but kind of through the same lens. And so offering content that says, hey, here's a design diary. Here's how I created this game. Here's how the, you know, the process went. Uh, here's how the shipping worked. Here's the mistakes that I made. So I'm able to use my game designs as case studies to still help that demographic, to still help the people that are listening to my show, looking for that content, trying to figure out, okay, how do you do this? And using my games as a way to kind of say, okay, here's exhibit A. Here's what I did. Here's what I should have done. I should have done this differently. And so I can still use that content you know, as, to help people learn. But at the same time, they're learning about my games as well. So there is some crossover of people saying, hey, really appreciate everything you do. I want to buy one of your games. I heard about it on the podcast. It sounds fun. Or I just want to support you. Really appreciate everything you've done. I want to you know, buy one of your games just to kind of help. That, so it's kind of this interesting uh, amalgamation of different things going on. How do you keep track of all the decisions that you make during your design? So do you have some kind of a notebook? Do you use some kind of software tools? Any any advice that you could give for um, for other designers out there that in my that are in my audience um, that want to keep track of everything what they do? So any tools yeah. maybe? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just a normal notebook is, is awesome. It's my favorite thing. It's just a little design journal that I have, and I kind of keep it uh, organized pretty well and keep all my ideas uh, straight, so to speak. Um, I, I don't think anything will ever, for me personally, will ever replace just the, the writing something down with pen and, and paper. It just feels good. I can go back and cross things out. It's easy to find. Uh, but then also, so our software, I use Trello, T-R-E-L-L-O.com. It's a really cool a free service that you can use to kind of organize all your ideas, all your thoughts. I use it a lot for like art direction when I'm working with artists or graphic designers to kind of post the different ideas I have. And you can put checklists, 
tons of different things that you can use uh, that software for to kind of keep things straight, especially if you're working with multiple people that, you know, I, I'm not, I can't send them my design journal. <laughs> I can't send them, I can't show them a picture of my notebook, uh, but I can use Trello to kind of keep everything organized uh, for them to be able to, to, to know what to work on next, to know what I'm thinking, to know where we're all at and, and stay, you know, communicating effectively. Yeah, great. Thanks. I, for personally, I use different media for that. I also use pen and paper, but I also sometimes have the feeling I just have to get stand up and walk around. And in that case, I use a, I use then my whiteboard and I'm taking pictures of that. And at the end, I try to put everything together in um, in OneNote and have it a yeah. little bit better organized there. Um, but I really think it's a it's a good habit to use different media, like something like a pen and paper, something like writing digitally, and um, yeah, maybe a whiteboard. That that are the three that I use really consistently for my for my design ideas. Oh yeah, I'm a huge fan of whiteboards. They're great. I love them for like the brainstorming process. Yes. I'm just trying to throw every idea, you know, get it out of my brain and out onto something, and like you said, take a picture of it. And there's certain software where you can take a picture of it and it'll organize it and make it searchable. Like you can search, even though it's written in you know whiteboard ink it'll still be searchable later. And that, that's a really cool, I can't remember the name of that software. I've seen it out there. Uh, so you can use that as well. I think Evernote does it to some degree, but yeah. it really depends on your handwriting. So for me, it would pro <laughs> wouldn't probably work. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Okay, then I would say let's let's transition a little bit to to the um, to the main topic for today, because we wanted yeah. to talk about Zolo gaming. And um, I don't know if you want to distinguish But in my understanding, there there are two different kinds of solo gaming. So, and, or solo games. They are the games that are strictly designed for, to be a solo game, with being a solo game in mind. Um, and then we have these other games that are typically multiplayer games that then have a solo mode that you can play. What is what is your definition of a solo game? Or do you distinguish between those two as well, or are they more or less the same for you? Yeah, I would say, I mean, in general, a solo game is just a game you can play by yourself. And so if that's the basic definition, then those two types of, I mean, it's the same. Um, but you make a really good point. Those things are very, very different. If you look at a game like Scythe or in any of Stonemaier games, they have that automa where I can now play the game by myself, but it's trying to recreate the multiplayer experience, right? It, it's trying to make it seem like I'm playing a multiplayer game, even though I'm the only human at the table. You know, all these bots are basically playing as well. If you think about, you know, old school video games or new school video games, you know, it's I, I'm playing by myself, but then all these there's all these bots running around trying to act like humans as much as possible, even though it's not exact, right? So that's a very different type of game than something like Dawn of the Zeds or Nemo's War or um, Unbroken, or these different games that are strictly for one player. There is no multiplayer experience. There's only the single-player experience. Uh, it, it's a very different game, and there's a lot of different design challenges that go into which you know whichever one of those styles you're going for. What are the kind of games that inspired you? I mean, you mentioned some of them, but um, were these already the games that really inspired you to create your own solo um, gaming experience, or what are some other games? Yeah, so it's like the main inspiration, it's kind of funny. So I, like I mentioned before, I live in Honduras, uh, and I my best friend that was here, the guy that I used to play games with all the time, he was a, just had a great mind for development. He was really good to play my prototypes and help me out, and we play games a lot. He moved back to the States. And so all of a sudden, I lost my number one gaming buddy. Uh, and so it was, I just... Yeah, I didn't have anybody to play with it, so mm -hmm. my wife, she plays sometimes, uh, but for the most part, I was just playing games by myself, and I started thinking, well, what if I just started designing games by myself, because that would make it a lot easier, <laughs> so that's kind of where the inspiration actually just came out of being alone, uh, so to speak, as far as gaming, 
Uh, and you know, and then playing some of these other games. Uh, the Lost Expedition is a great one. The Judge Dredd uh, rig theming of that one is is just really cool. I really like that one. Uh, that was kind of one of the main inspirations of thinking, okay, I think I could make one of these myself, right? I see how it's done. I see how it's working. And then I had interviewed several people on my own podcast uh, about solo games. Uh, the guy Herman, uh, who who developed Dawn of the Zeds, one of the best solo games ever made. He came on the show a while back. Morton Peterson, who designs all the Automas for uh, Stonemaier Games, he came on the show. And so I was able to kind of go back in the, in the file and listen to these episodes again and kind of hear about these guys and their, their processes for making these styles of games and think, you know, I think I could, I think I could do this. I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to try it. And then, you know, just start doing research like all those games I just mentioned, just trying to figure out, okay, how do these games work? What are the systems? What's the difficulty levels? What are the different things they got going on? How can I do it? Similar, but also bring something new to the table, do something different. What do you What do you really look for when you play a solo game for yourself? Are there any specific characteristics that that you really want to have in a solo game, which are more, maybe not that important for a multiplayer game? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's different than you know for me personally, different in a, in a multiplayer game. Like I want theme, I want experience. You know, I'm not a huge. I like abstract games; they're fun. There's several that I really. Uh, enjoy uh, a friend of mine, David Abelson. He, he designed one called Wake, W-A-Y-K. He's actually on Kickstarter right now. I'm a huge fan of that one. Um, but there's just something about an experience game. You know, chucking a bunch of dice, running around, blowing up stuff, shooting bad guys. You know, I just I want to feel that adventure. You know, and so when I designed uh, so, some solo games, I wanted the exact same experience. You know, how can I be this one person? You know, one against the world, kind of like action movie style. It's, it's you know, time's running out, the bomb's about to explode, the aliens are at the door, the terrorists are coming, whatever it is, and then you know, get that experience of this one versus the world kind of thing. And so that, that's the kind of games I want to play. And so it turns out that's the kind of games I design. Yeah, that sounds that sounds quite a bit like like hunted already. So why don't you <laughs> why don't you take the chance to to explain the audience a little bit um, what your game is about? Yeah, so hunted is actually it's a, it's going to be a series of games. Uh, the first two are available uh, right now, and it's it's this the system is going to be the same. The card play, how the cards come out, it's a, it's very much a push your luck style game. Where you're drawing cards off the top of a deck. Uh, trying to work your way through a different building or through a different area, trying to save the day. Uh, and so the first two games are, one is Kobayashi Tower, and the other one is Mining Colony 415. And so you have two very, very different themes, and the mechanisms, everything, the way the games play are very, very different, but the main core card play system is the same, and kind of how the cards combo, and every card is multi-use and have different icons, and you can use some cards for currency and use the other cards to buy them and do different things. Get guns, get weapons, you know, that kind of thing. But you're trying to work your way through locations and, and figure things out. So in Kobayashi Tower, uh, your wife has been taken by terrorists, and so you're trying to work your way through this massive skyscraper uh, to find the terrorists, take them out, eventually rescue your wife. Uh, and it's all dice-based. So you're rolling dice. You're trying to mitigate die rolls to do attacks, to uh, you know, succeed for different tests, you know, not get blown up, you know, find different items, that kind of thing. And so it's very much a dice roller. It's, it's a lot of luck, but at the same time, you're trying to mitigate that luck and, and you know, do different cards and combos and things like that. In Mining Colony 415, you were on this, you, your, your spaceship was floating along, you know, heading back towards Earth. All of a sudden, you heard this distress beacon from kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So you go to check it out and you go down to the planet and come to find out this whole mining colony has been taken over by aliens who now want to eat your face as well. And so you're <laughs> trying to get back to your ship uh, before the, uh, the self-destruct um, mechanism goes off for the, the colony and blows everything up. And so you're making your way down corridors and trying to get you know through the through the mining colony. And that one is dexterity based. Like you mentioned before, I'm a huge fan of dexterity games. And so the way that one works is 
uh, you you toss tokens into the game's box and you try to land it in different targets, different places, uh, whether you're shooting or whether you're trying to pass a test or things like that. Use tokens and the tokens change sizes based on, you know, are you using a flamethrower versus a machine gun? You're going to have different size tokens or uh, if you have full health, you have a bigger token to throw than if you have hardly any health. You know, it's, it, tests get harder to succeed on because you're, you know, you're damaged. And so uh, th- that's kind of the, those two games. And the idea was I want to be an action hero. I want to be back in the 80s. I want to be me and my gun against the world, and I'm going to go out there and save the day. I want to kill aliens, uh, kill terrorists, rescue people, and uh, you know, go home and have, have you know, <laughs> right off into the sunset, so to speak. I really like how you made the dexterity throwing of, of these coins or what it is um, thematic by, by yeah. making them... I, I would guess easier with a flamethrower than a, than a, than a pistol, for example, um, and um, also making it harder when you are damaged. I really like how you um, how you added these theme into the mechanics there. That's a good job, I would say. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I, what I love about that one—that was actually the first game. The dexterity one came first, and then I started thinking, well, a lot of people don't like dexterity, so maybe maybe I'll do a die roll on one as well. <laughs> That's <laughs> that came out. Uh, but the dexterity—I I love it. I love that tension of okay, I've got one bullet, and there's one alien in my way. And I'm going to live or die based on how I toss this token. Do I do I land it in the right spot to be able to take that alien out? And there's no dice. You know, it's not I can't blame luck. I can't blame the universe. It was it's up to me and my skill and being able to do this to be able to pass uh, through or not. And so I really love that that tension that you get in, in that moment. But then, you know, the dice one, it's a lot of tension as well. You're going to roll these dice and hopefully they, they come up what you need them to. And so it's, it's been a lot of fun to work on. What immediately comes to my mind when you explain those games is that it must be very difficult and time-consuming to come up with a with a lot of different um, mechanics, combat resolution, for example, and um, and stuff like that. So, why did you choose to make them so different? Each of these games of this series, you could have done probably the same um, for for each for each game. Um, of this series and just um, change the, the story, for example, the story part. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I thought about that. Um, but I wanted every game to be a different experience. And so I want every game's mechanisms as far as combat, as far as uh, resolution uh, for different events and, and tests and whatnot. I want it to feel different. And I want to I marry that m- new mechanism with the theme as best I can. Uh, and so, you know, every game in the series will have a different uh, mechanism as far as like You know, I'm working on one that's going to be a bag building game. I'm working on one that's going to be a token uh, tossing kind of not 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 like the dexterity one, but almost like a uh, trying to think of the game. But anyway, you, you toss the tokens and you know you have certain icons on one side of the token and a different icon on the other, and depending on what what flips out, that it's going to determine success or failure. And so there's all sorts of different games that you can kind of borrow combat from, and then turn it on its head, do something new, do 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 something different. And so that's another thing. It's, it's kind of fun to go find these other games that have a really cool combat mechanism or, or combat system and go, okay, how can I borrow that idea, twist it around, change it a little bit, add something to it, take something away, and make it thematic for this game that I'm also working on right now. And so it's, it's a lot of learning from other designers and what they've done and then kind of borrowing ideas and, and putting my own spin on it and then making it all you know, mesh together for whatever game I'm working on. Yeah, I th- I'm sure you you learn quite a bit by doing that, uh, by implementing um, so many different uh, combat mechanics, for example. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and you you already said that um, the story plays a plays an important role in your games or the theme. So my question would be, how do you push the story forward in your games? So how do you add progression to the game? So um, if you uh, 
climb uh, this um, skyscraper, for example. How is this built in the game as a mechanic? Yeah, so you're always trying to balance two your, your main two resources, which are your health and your time. So everything you do is going to take time, and if you run out, you know, if you hit zero, you're dead. Uh, the terrorists have taken your wife, and they've left, or the mining colony has blown up, and now everybody's dead, uh, or whatever. So you're always having to manage your time. So you can't just sit and, and heal, sit and reload. You always have to make those choices of, okay, I only have a little bit of time left, so I'm, I'm just going to not, I'm not going to heal. I'm, I'm going to not worry about that med kit right now. I'm just going to run around with my two health and hope, hope I do okay. And so you're always having to manage those two things. Uh, and then as the cards come out, you know, you've got different choices. You can always uh, hide, which costs time, but you, you're able to clear the row of cards that you've drawn, right? Because if you get too many of certain icons, terrorist attack or aliens attack. And so you have to always manage, okay, what cards are coming out? How much noise am I making? What icons are showing? Ooh, I really need to hide right now, but I don't have much time. So I'm going to draw one more. I'm going to keep pushing my luck to see what happens. And so the time really forces you to, to progress, to make, uh, to, uh, to keep going, to keep drawing cards, trying to get through the location deck. So as you draw from the main deck, you're getting icons trying to get through the location deck. And that's really where the game is won or lost. Is can you get all the way down to the bottom of the location deck to either get to your spaceship to get off the, you know, the colony and, and escape, or to find, get to the roof and kill the big bad uh, terrorist and save your wife. So you're always trying to progress. But at the same time, it's like, okay, I, I need this grenade because that would help me kill stuff. But at the same time, I need this other card to move through the location deck. So you're always having to balance out the, that decision. Do I take this thing that's going to help me later, or do I, do I take the thing that's going to help me right now? And so it's a really interesting tension. Yeah, that sounds really, really interesting, um, what you built there. And um, maybe one follow-up question to that, because it definitely reminded me of something. So when I play a multiplayer game, which we do um, most of the time, they're often co-op games, and one very important aspect of these games is the social component. So these social components can be any kind of negotiations in the game or political decisions or trades or any kind of conflict between the players. Um, but also on the table itself. So when some some of the players have some kind of downtime, they at least have something to look on when the other players make their decisions or they can talk on the table or whatsoever. They have some kind of social interaction. And That is something that you definitely don't have in, in a solo game, unless you have multiple um, personalities, maybe. But um, so what you already mentioned, these um, different resources that you have to mention, and I think they are really, really good to um, to keep up the tension. And maybe this is um, this is exactly what you need in, in solo games, um, that you do not have these downtimes. Um, so would you say that um, that this is one... Very important aspect in um, in solo game that you do not have downtimes. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely one of the main pros. As far you know, if we're talking pros and cons of designing solo games. It's one of the biggest pros is that you don't really have to deal with downtime. You know, if you have this big sprawling 4x kind of game and each turn takes several minutes, well, if it's a four or five player game and it takes three minutes per turn, then it's it's going to be roughly 10 minutes before it's my turn again. You know, and so that's that's a long time just to sit and wait and watch. And like you're saying, especially if you don't have a lot going on, if you're not really having to pay attention to what you know other people are doing, it, it it's it's like okay, I'll just look on my phone for the next ten minutes. Let me know when it's my turn. I'm just going to scan mm -hmm. through Instagram or Facebook. But with a solo game, it it doesn't matter. The turn time could be however long you want it to be, because as soon as you're done with that turn, oh, it's my turn again immediately. And so you don't have to worry about that as much because you don't have to deal with downtime. It's okay if a turn takes a while. It's okay if combat takes a while to resolve. 
because unlike in a multiplayer game, if you and I are, are in a combat, but the other two players are not, and combat takes a long time, well, okay, we're having fun. You and I, we're, we're rolling dice, we're playing cards, we're doing different things, we're trying to you know, strategize and, and be tactical and beat the other one, while the other players at the table are just sitting and twiddling their thumbs and like hoping we're done soon. Well, in a solo game, you don't have to worry about that. And so it's a lot um, more interesting. You can do a lot more interesting things that maybe you couldn't do in a multiplayer game just because you don't have to worry about downtime. You don't have to worry about, okay, how long does combat take to resolve? I want to make sure it's as tight as possible. You, know, you can kind of make it a little more in-depth. You can make it a little more thought-provoking. You can make it a little more complex because it's just that one player sitting there trying to think through it. And if they want to take 20 minutes to think through what they're going to do in this combat round, they can, and nobody's there to get mad or upset or, or you know, you know, get frustrated about that. And so it's a, it's a really interesting design space that you can get into just because you don't have to deal with things that you normally have to deal with with multiplayer. Yeah, we often have these problems when it comes to um, games in which you have to read a story, for example. We had this when we were playing, for example, a digital game, uh, Baldur's Gate, for example, and we tried to play it as a multiplayer game. And you have to read these conversations, and everyone is reading in a different in a different speed. And um, someone clicks on next, and then you cannot read the rest. And this these kind of situations come up in co-op games um, quite often, not only only with reading text, but also with uh, making decisions where you have to wait for all the other players. So I think this is very a very good advantage of um, of solo games. You're right. What I have Heard is that, and that is maybe also quite similar to co-op games. When we play co-op games, we really prefer them to be very difficult. Um, and I have heard that um, this is pretty much the same with solo games, that people want to be challenged. So my question to you would be, are your games difficult? And if so, how difficult are they and was it on, um, intended? Yeah, so that's another thing when I started working on solo games, like, okay, these have to be hard. Because when, when I play a solo game, I want to feel like I earned it. If I win, you know, I want to be able to look back and go, okay, I made these decisions, which led to me winning. And, and, or at the same time, I lost, but here's, here's why. And if I made these different decisions at these different points, maybe I could have won. You know, it, I would have at least had a chance. And so you definitely want it to be hard. Uh, like a co-op game, you want it to feel like you earned it. Like you came together as a team and you do what had to be done to save the planet or, you know, what, you know win, whatever it is. And so, uh, one, like, Early on, the games were really hard, but they were punishing. So they they were like you would lose, but you go okay. I don't I don't know what else I could have done there. So I had to kind of bring like pull that back and balance some things out. So at least you had you know decisions that you were making that you could say okay, I won or lost based on these decisions, not just the game was punishing to the point where I, I had nothing else I could do, right? Uh, and so then I, I kind of the game was a little bit too easy, and mm -hmm. so it was a little bit too easy to win. Uh, you had too many dice to roll, you had too many tokens to toss, and so it wasn't the tension wasn't there the way I wanted it to be. And so then I'm, it's just been a, a give and take, a back and forth of trying to figure out balance. And then also another good thing you can do is just add other difficulty modes. You know, And so the normal difficulty needs to be hard, but then you can also add in a hard mode where you really limit resources, you limit time, you limit uh, different things a player can do and, and cause them to have to get better skill-wise at the game or make really just perfect decisions along the way. You, you don't have any room for error, but you can add other, other difficulty modes in there as well. And so there's the kind of balance. Because people don't want to lose and then go, well, I had no chance. I never could have won. But at the same time, you don't want them to win so easily. They go, well, I don't have to play that game again. It was too easy. <laughs> so it's it's about finding the, the balance somewhere in between. Yeah. And you said you, you're doing this by a step-by-step -step approach. So I guess you are playtesting the game. The question is, um, I mean, it's a solo game. Do you only playtest it on your, by yourself? Or um, how do you playtest the game? And is it more difficult to playtest a, um, a multiplayer game? 
What would you say? Yeah, well, it's definitely more difficult to to do a multiplayer game because you know I have to find other people, <laughs> whether it's online and, and sending the game out to playtesters or just finding people in my area to say, hey, can you come over on Sunday night and I'll, I'll give you dinner if you sit down and play a game for an hour. Versus, you know, it's Wednesday afternoon. I don't have anything to do. I think I'll pop my solo game out for 20 minutes and see if I can, you know, win. Uh, it's so much easier because I don't have to schedule anything. It's just whenever I have time, I can just sit down and play it, uh, and that's been really nice. And my wife's been really helpful as well. To uh, to sit down and play and I, you know just watch her uh, kind of like a almost like a blind playtesting where I say here's the game you you figure out how to play it I'm just gonna sit here and, and take notes on how you play and and you know the rule book and things like that and I've got some good friends as well that helped me over the summer that um, would would test the game and you know I get this it, it's <laughs> like any other game you know all the rules you know you know how the game's supposed to be played and it's not until you give it to somebody who's brand new to the thing that you really learn what you need to learn about it you know mm. somebody who has never played it, who doesn't understand the best strategy, so to speak. And you get to see all these new things that you never even thought about all of a sudden start coming to light. And some of them are good, some of them are broken. And you got to fix, you know, fix all those things in between. Uh, but then also, yeah, blind playtesting, uh, getting in, involved in the print and play community has been super helpful. Just all the people on Facebook and online that are solo gamers, that are print and play gamers, that love getting files and, you know, printing out cards and, and, you know, some of these people have a much better prototype than I do. You know, they together <laughs> just incredible print and play version of the game, and it's beautiful and it's functional and it works really well. And then they they've provided incredible feedback as far as hey, this card seems a little bit useless. Uh, this over here is a little bit broken. You know, this is here's my final score. Here's you know, I thought this is a little easy, this is a little hard. I get so much great feedback from people that I've never even met in real life just through the print and play community of just basically just saying hey guys, here's the files. You know, have fun with it. Let me know what you think. Give me some feedback. I uh, really appreciate your help. And so that's that's been something super helpful that I would recommend anybody who's listening to this who wants to design a game, get involved in the print and play community because they're phenomenal people and they'll really help you out in the playtesting process. Can you point the people into the right direction? So where do they find these uh, these communities? Yeah, so one, one of my favorites, probably my favorite, is um, Martin's Print and Play Hideaway. So Martin Gonzalez, I think is his name, his last name. Uh, he is just phenomenal. He's all over the solo uh, gaming Facebook groups. I think let's see, BG41 is one of those solo board game board gaming, something like that. Is another big group out there. It's got tons and tons, just thousands of members. But then Martin has his own uh, Facebook group, Facebook community. Martin's Print and Play Hideaway. That's all about how, one of all, like first of all, it's like how how do you create a print and play? So he has all these like step by step videos. Here's how you print them out. Here's how you cut the corners. Here's how you do things and, and straighten things up. So he's really good about just helping people get involved in that hobby. But then also just people constantly posting, hey, here's the game I made. Uh, here's the print and play I put together. Here's what I thought of it. That kind of thing as well. So it's really helpful. Yeah, that's great. So I will try to find these groups and post the links in the show notes for everyone who's interested. Have you already um, also used the um, your audience? I mean, you have a lot of lot of people listening to your podcast and a lot of connections in the industry already. So, have you used your audience as well as playtesters? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, every now and then I'll put out a, a post either through the Facebook group or, or you know just a call to action through the podcast, and I say, hey, you know, I'm working on some this game, and if you know, I tell people about the game if it sounds interesting to you. Uh, Playtesters, I'm looking for playtesters right now. Playtesting is open and available, and so you know, click this link, go to this Facebook group, whatever, and uh, they can sign up that way. So it's not, it's something I don't want to just like push it on people. I'm not trying to spam people or anything like that, but at the same time, making it available because I get people that email me all the time and they say, hey, you know, I heard about this game you're working on through the show. Let me know when you need playtesters. I'd love. It sounds cool. It sounds like my kind of game. Just let me know. And so you know, I want to make sure I'm honoring those people that really do, that really are interested and really want to help me out. Uh, and, and so I want to make sure that those opportunities are, avail are available without at the same time as being like a, a used car salesman kind of thing. So mm -hmm. it's that fine balance. Yeah, I, I think it's amazing how 
engaged the people are in this industry. So having a podcast and an audience myself, it's um, I'm I'm really impressed um, how helpful everyone is in this industry. This I have never never experienced this in another industry before before. Yeah, I agree. It's it's amazing how much people are just open yeah. to help you. You know, it's not like oh, I've got my my trade secrets and you can't have any of them, and I hope your company fails and you know screw you. I'm going to do my thing. It's not like that at all. Everybody's super open with information. Not not everything. You know, it's not 100, percent but for the most part, are open with information about manufacturing and shipping, logistics and marketing, all these different things. Just trying to help each other under the idea of you know a rising tide raises all ships. You know, and so if your company is able to bring in more gamers to the hobby then it's going to help me out too. Because I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone who came into the hobby and bought one game. And we're like, yep, I'm done. That's all I need. I just needed that one game, and now I'm I'm complete. It's not like a car. You know, mm-hmm. if they go buy a Ford, they're not going to, you know, the next day buy a Honda. That's not how it works in games. You know, if they buy a Ford game, they're going to the next day buy a Honda and a Toyota, and a, you know, <laughs> they're going to buy every every game they can find. And they're going to fill up their shelves uh, because that's just kind of how, how it works. And, you know, as people get into it, they get more into it. And so it, they can go out and... And again, it raises up everybody else, and so it's just a really welcoming, really friendly industry to be in. Yeah, and also, also the designers. You mentioned this in the beginning um, when you talked about your podcast. It's the same for me. When I ask a designer if he wants to do an interview, most of them they yes, and they I know they have a lot of lot to do as well, and um, it's really their I would say it's their IP they talk about because their unique uh, selling point because they really let other people learn from them and see their their little piece of magic that they use when they design games. So, but um, you also mentioned that you are, your plan for this uh, game, for Hunted, is to have it as a series of games. So, in the beginning, and I know the Kickstarter currently is um, um, has two games included. So, why did you did you decide to um, start with two immediately? You could have, could have started with one and um, have the other one as an expansion maybe in two or three months when the people... We're asking about it um, because they were though so happy with the first one. So why did you start uh, with two? Yeah, so it really goes back to what I was saying earlier as far as the dexterity aspect. A lot of people just don't like dexterity games. You know, I've gotten lots of people that said, hey, you know, I love the, the theme of Mining Colony 415, but I hate dexterity. So sorry, I'm not going to back a game. And it's like, that's cool. That's fine. I totally understand. Uh, and so for this first Kickstarter, one, I wanted to launch the series. Uh, and so, you know, and it's technically you need three games to have a series. I think I think two is not <laughs> technically a series yet. But anyway, we'll, we'll not worry about the semantics. Uh, but it was mainly because a lot of people aren't into dexterity. So I wanted to offer both a dexterity and a dice version of, of, you know, the game. And again, it's not just a, well, this one has dexterity, this one has dice. It's the same, like, they're very, very different in how they play. The cards are very different. Uh, the experiences are very different. They come out of these different mechanisms and different systems. Uh, but that, that was it. Uh, it mainly, it's just from a product standpoint you know a lot of people aren't into dexterity games i understand that so i want to offer a alternative for them as well and plus doing it with two i can do a lot better shipping rates like if you get one game the shipping is what it is but if you get a second game obviously i can i can have a lot more uh, play that i can i can more flexibility with the shipping rates and things like that just because of the the nature of shipping and how crazy the prices are but once you start just adding to the same box it's a little easier to to do cheaper shipping and um have you already uh, the next the next uh expansions in the pipeline for for this series so that we can actually call it a series when the third one comes out <laughs> yeah definitely so the third one technically is not uh it's not going to be a hunted game it's going to use the same core card play mechanism this is kind of funny so my wife like i said she was helping me with the, the play testing and doing different things and i remember one after one session you know we were talking about things and later she was like you know 
why is it always got to be blowing stuff up and shooting aliens and like always got to be that? Why can't you ever do some like different kind of theme? And I thought, well, I don't, I don't know. I never thought about it. And uh, and she said, you need like like a romance, like a love. Can you make a love game? I was like, this, I don't. Hmm. And uh, a little bit later, I was I was in the shower and I was just pondering what she thought, what she said. And I thought, what if I made a Pride and Prejudice version? You know, where you're not being hunted necessarily, but like all these debutantes and all these suitors are trying to to get you to marry them. Right. But you don't want to marry for, for that. You want to marry for love. And so, you you know, so you're still having to beat the clock. And if you've ever read or seen Pride and Prejudice, you know, that Elizabeth, her father, he's he's dying. He's old. And, and you really she needs to get married before he dies. So you do have a time element. You have to get married before he dies. So you have this you know progression like you have to move forward. And, and so I was like, man, this could be interesting. Uh, and I pitched it to her. I was like, Hey, what if I did a Pride and Prejudice game? And she just lit up. She's like, yes, that that's the kind of game you need to make. And uh, so that's going to be the next one in, in this hunted system uh, series is Pride and Prejudice. And uh, it's actually one or two players. So I made it where you could be Elizabeth or Darcy or you could play like with your spouse or with your significant other. Uh, you could, you know, one of you plays Elizabeth, Elizabeth one of you plays uh, Darcy. And so you're going through the same kind of card play and you're trying to make combinations. And But basically you're trying to fall in love. You're trying to do different things to increase your love track enough <laughs> where, you know, you fall in love and you, know, you can avoid all the suitors and all the debutantes trying to – to steal you away. And so that's going to be the next one in the series. And then uh, the next hunted specific game is kind of a D&D style game. It uses a D20 system. Uh, it's called Realm of, Sha- Realm, Realm of Shadows. And you're, you're, it's going to have all sorts of different modules that you can plug in. So you have, you have the same core cards, but then all these different modules. Are you in the Forbidden Forest? Are you in this dungeon or that dungeon? You know, it has different modules you can plug in. It has different enemies, have different you know bosses at the end. Uh, and that, that one's going to be a lot of fun. I've been working on that one a good bit lately. And so those are the next two in the series, and we'll just kind of see where it goes from there. Yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> I would be very much interested in how the target audience um, overlaps for for these games. Because they're quite <laughs> different, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I think there's a lot of people in the solo gaming community that do have girlfriends, boyfriends, spouses, whatever, that would love for that other person to play, but maybe they just haven't found the right game. And I think that's like we, we've talked about Wingspan a good bit on my own podcast about how Wingspan has done such a great job of bringing new people into the hobby that just maybe weren't into games for whatever reason. They look at certain themes. They're like, I don't care. But then they saw that bird theme and it was beautiful and had all these amazing images and it had a female designer. And all of a sudden they're like, wow, this maybe this is for me after all. And they've been brought into the hobby and now they want to play all sorts of other games. And so I'm trying to work on a game that's going to do something similar. It's going to bring people in that maybe have kind of written games off. It's like, oh, that's that, that thing over there that I'm not interested in. It's like, well, maybe th- maybe you really are. You just haven't found the right game to play. And so uh, hopefully th- this game will, will bring people in. Hopefully it's something that people that back the Kickstarter right now will pick up later and say, hey, you know, I really enjoyed the system. I think my significant other or my friend, whatever, who maybe they're not normally into games, I think they'll enjoy this theme, maybe more so than blowing up terrorists or blowing up aliens. Or, and so the same kind of thing that my wife was experiencing. I want something different. This is cool. This is fun. But can you do it in a different way? And so hopefully it'll bring more people in. That sounds a little bit like uh, the discussion that I have with my wife when we talk about uh, what kind of movie we watch at Netflix today. Is it about uh, <laughs> shooting aliens or is it about getting married? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, and you mentioned that your that these games are all you 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 created them as a solo game, but they also have a two player variant, and and this is kind of interesting for me because um, most of the the games come from the other direction. I would say where you have a multiplayer game that adds a solo variant on top, and you do it the other way around. Can you maybe tell a little bit why you did that? 
Yeah, so originally I didn't have a plan to do that at all. It was going to be, these are solo games, and that's it. <laughs> you know, There's one player, and this is how the game plays, and here's the experience. But then so many people kept asking me, and they said, hey, can you create a two-player mode, a two-player variant? Is there any way to play this two players? And it's not something I had really put a lot of thought into. Uh, but the good news was I was already working on the Pride and Prejudice game that is two players. And so I already had the ideas for how this game, you know, how it can work, the different uh, mechanisms, the different, you know, uh, actions that players can do on their turn, how they can help each other, how, you know, and so I already had those ideas brewing and, and working on. And so it wasn't actually that hard to transport those ideas over into Kobayashi Tower and Mining Colony 415. So that was one good thing. I was already kind of parallel working on a two player ver- version. I just had never thought about porting that over into these other games. And so it wasn't that difficult. Uh, and basically you just take, you're taking turns. Um, you, the gameplay is exactly the same, but you have a character and I have a character. We have a little bit more limited resources, uh, and but we're still playing. You know, the card plays, the cards play out the same, that kind of thing. There's a couple different rules that get added in for how to help each other, how to give each other items, and that kind of thing. But it, it wasn't that difficult to add it in as a two-player mode, and I think it works really well, and it's going to satisfy people that really enjoy playing games two-player, not just by themselves. So it's cooperative, right? When you say you yeah, can yeah, help each other, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm really interested um, to see the uh, Dungeons and Dragons version of the game because that's right up my alley. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited <laughs> for that one for sure. I, I think you know I was looking at these themes that, that I start off with. I think a lot of people are interested in these kinds, but I think way more people are interested in the fantasy D and D style kind of thing. So I think this first these first couple games are going to be really good to kind of get my feet wet, really understanding one the business side of things. How much does it really cost? to ship these things, the logistics, all the things that you don't really know because you haven't quite done it yet. You know what I mean? That you do one good project and you go, oh, okay, here's, here's the things I need to change, do differently. Because there's been so many projects out there that just made one tiny mistake, but then multiplied it by 10,000 backers. And all of a sudden it's a humongous financial mistake. And so luckily I haven't, <laughs> it's, it's kind of the curse of success sometimes, you know, with, with some projects that do really, really well. But then, you know, one tiny mishap and all of a sudden that gets multiplied exponentially. And so it's, it's actually probably for the best that the, con- the uh, campaign I'm running right now is not crazy. It's not viral, you know, going, every- going crazy everywhere. Uh, it's doing really, really well. And I'm excited about where it's at right now. But it's probably a blessing that hasn't done just gone bananas, you know. Uh, but maybe the D&D version will really appeal to more people. And, and then that one can kind of blow up and do some really cool stuff and, you know, add a lot of stretch goals, add a lot of extra modules and cards and things like that. And so we'll, we'll see what happens. But I think, yeah, like you're saying, I think it's going to appeal to more people. And hopefully I'll have a good base of support day one that then it'll steamroll and pick up momentum and bring in more people along the way. Yeah, from what you have told in the beginning of this podcast, I can really see your strategy here because um, it all makes a lot of sense. You you want to go into the industry full time and with a game that you can produce as a series um, by building up uh, an audience over time and learning step by step. This brings exactly uh, what you need to the table. So I think that's a very good strategy for the future and um, I wish you all the best with that. I really appreciate it. Maybe I can come on a year from now and we can talk about if it worked or why it didn't work. <laughs> kind of unpack it. And we would be very happy to do that in, the, in a year from now, to talk about the millions of millions of copies that you have sold. <laughs> <laughs> so um, are there any other tips that you would like to give other designers um, and how, that also want to design solo games? So anything that you have learned on your journey that you want to um, want to tell them? Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest thing is just just do it. Just do something. You know, a lot of times it's easy to kind of get caught up in our head 
and, and think about it and, and want to do it and, and write down ideas and write down those things without ever actually making the leap, you know, and taking that next step of actually doing it, designing it, prototyping it, and playtesting it. And so that's the biggest thing. You will learn more uh, from playtesting it one time than you will ever learn from just writing down ideas and notes and stuff like that. Like you just learn so much from getting a game to the table, you know, that you just don't get if it's just bouncing around in your head. You know, a lot of people, they run into what's called the toolbox fallacy where they think, okay, I'll do this one day, but first I need this. I need that. I need this other thing. Whenever I have this, then I'll be able to do the thing that I want to do. And that day is never going to come. I, it just doesn't, you will always find reasons why you can't, why you're not quite ready enough you know, or whatever. And so you just, you got to do it. You just got to start doing it. Uh, the people who are the best of the best in any creative venture, whether it's writing, art, movie making, games, whatever, are people that did it over and over and over again that early on made a lot of trash, a lot of stuff that wasn't worth publishing, a lot of stuff that, they, you know, that they threw in the garbage that wasn't worth showing anybody. But that's where you grow. That's where you learn. And there is no substitute. There is no shortcut for those things. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and Hemingway, all these people wrote Tons of really bad stuff before they wrote the greatest novels in the history of the English language, you know. And so that's something I, you know, I'm an English teacher, and so I tell my students that all the time. It's like, yeah, the rough draft you just wrote is terrible. It is, but that's okay. Like, first of all, you're 16. Everything you write is gonna be bad. You haven't, you don't, you don't have experience. But the only way to get experience is to go out there and do it. And so that's the same thing with game design. Uh, another thing is, a lot of times game designers, they, they start off and they have all these ideas about this giant game that they want to make, even though they've never made an 18-card game. You know, So start small. You know, Limit your scope. And if you, if you find yourself in a situation where you don't have a lot of people around you to help you play test, to help you create a game, you know, a big multiplayer game, design a solo game. Just lean into whatever your situation is. Don't try to avoid it. Don't try to run from it. Just lean into it. You know, like in my situation, I didn't have a lot of people to play games with. It's like, well, okay, I'll just make a solo game and we'll see what happens. And I just leaned into my situation. I grew, I got better, and eventually it became something that I'm really, really proud of. And so that's another thing. Don't don't try to be something that you're not. Just lean into wherever you are right now and then grow, learn, keep getting better, keep making cool stuff. And eventually you'll have some stuff that you're really proud of. Thank you, Gabe. That is uh, great advice. Uh, everyone should uh, take to heart. And um, it was a pleasure to have you on the show today. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me. Um, it was a lot of fun to talk to you, and um, I really, really wish you all the best for your current Kickstarter campaign and everyone who is listening. I really um, would say you should look at the Kickstarter campaign because, um, especially for the for the dexterity part we talked about, because um, tossing these small coins um, this sounds strange and you i couldn't really imagine how it would look like in the beginning so when i saw it on the kickstarter campaign it was um it was really eye-opening for me and i think it's a very very nice uh, a nice idea so you oh. should go there and look at it yeah i really appreciate that okay thank you gabe um have a nice day and hope you hear us in a, in a year from now <laughs> sounds great <laughs> okay goodbye bye thank you so much for listening everyone If you want to talk about that episode or want to share your own work or ask some questions about game design, uh, I would love to see you over at the NerdLab Discord channel. Um, a lot of great people and designers are already there and I would love to see you there as well. Until then, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss. <laughs>